Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each episode, we bring you a huge amount of value from past keynotes at our events, fireside chats, and much, much more. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs such as Gary Vaynerchuk, James Altucher, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we can't wait to share more episodes with you in the future. Part of why we do that is to get a sense of what you guys know about Kevin, so we'll talk a bit about Zola. But let me tell you his, his official and real uh, bio. So Kevin P. Ryan is one of the leading internet entrepreneurs in New York. He's founded and is chairman of several businesses, including Business Insider, MongoDB, Gilt, and Zola, even though none of you have heard of that company. It's a wedding registry. Combined, these companies have raised more than $500 million in venture capital funding and currently employ almost 2,000 people. He's uh, previously helped build DoubleClick from 1996 to 2005, first as president and later as CEO. He led DoubleClick's growth from a 20-person startup to a publicly traded global leader with over 1,500 employees. In 2013, he was named one of the 100 most influential New Yorkers in the past 25 years by The Observer. Aside from his professional responsibilities, he serves on the board of Yale Corporation and Human Rights Watch, is vice chairman of the Partnership of New York City and is a member of the Council on Foreign Affairs. He previously served on the boards, boards of INSEED, the, uh, the Direct Marketing Association, the Ad Council, Hot Jobs, and the Advisory Board of Direct, uh, Doctors Without Borders. He has a BA from Yale University and an MBA from INSEED. We need another good round of applause. Please welcome Kevin Ryan. Hi. It may not be on. Is it on now? There we go. So which one of those companies is your favorite? You know, they're like children. You can't pick favorites that way. But uh, each one's different. The, the, the three that have been around for somewhere between, somewhere between six and eight years, so Business Insider, Mongo, and uh, Gilt. In some ways, Gilt is the most fun, just because it's in a lot of fun industries. So you're, you know, when, you, when you have business... Uh, Here, when you have, a, as part of your business, you have to actually be out for a night in a nightclub in Las Vegas with Kim Kardashian. That makes it fun. Business Insider um, is the one that touches the most people. So we'll probably have close to 100 million uniques uh, this month, which is incredibly validating. We started with two employees, uh, you know, eight years ago. Mongo is actually probably going to be the most valuable out of all those companies. Uh, so, so different metrics for each one of them. Zola is actually doing particularly well. Zola will be in its third year next year. It'll do, we'll collect about $100 million in, uh, in cash and wedding presents uh, flowing through the system. So it's actually one of the fastest growing e-commerce companies in New York. Contour hasn't even gone public as a site yet. Uh, it's, it's similar to House if you did it for offices. So 15 employees, it's only, uh, I, I started putting the team together about eight months ago, so much earlier. And then I have a new healthcare company that I have just put together this summer and that'll launch in December. Hasn't been announced yet. I, since the, you know, it is topical given the debate tonight, tell us a little bit about the healthcare company. So that hasn't been announced yet, uh, but it's, gonna, it's a B2B space, so it's going to be providing products, uh, staffing products for hospitals. So it'll be a marketplace and it'll launch in uh, December, January. So let's talk about how you got here. Mm -hmm. um, because you guys may have noticed, he's a little bit older than our than most of our founders, and he's turning fifty one next month or fifty two next month. Um, so you maybe in, in some cases got a later start than others. So tell us a little bit about some of the early days, in particular um, your days at Scripps, and and how your experience with Dilbert affected your interest in in leaving the company. 
Yeah, I originally had a finance background, and when I was 32, I was working for EW Scripts, which is a publicly traded media company. And as part of that process in 95, I launched a website. And so it was pretty early in the commercial internet. By the beginning of 96, we had a very, very successful, probably top 10 website, actually. Uh, Dilbert was well known among engineers. People forget, even in this room, that we really didn't have search engines at that point. So it was hard to find things. Um, and so uh, beginning in 96, I uh, just decided that I thought the internet was going to be the most fundamental thing in my lifetime from a business point of view, which sounded obvious today. But I went to the parent company and said, uh, you should give me $2 million and I'll help build up an internet division. And they thought about it for a long time, like two months in an annoying way, and then came back and said, no, we're not sure the internet's going to be big. Remember, CD-ROMs were really big in 94. This could be the next CD-ROM thing that then collapses. And so I then concluded that actually I didn't need them, that my idea, my fundamental idea about the internet was a good one, and I was willing to bet my sort of career on it, and I would go start an internet company. And then the only thing that changed is I went out to see the people who were, the companies who were already doing something in the space I was interested in, which was internet advertising, and I uh, found one or two companies and I thought, nothing too interesting. I met the guys who had just founded DoubleClick five months before. Very, very impressed with them. In fact, I'm still working with one of those two guys today, uh, which is almost uh, 20 years later. And uh, they said, why, why don't you come join us instead of starting your own company? And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. What they've created uh, already was very, very impressive. And uh, I joined them. It was very small. We went public two years after the company was founded, something that you can't even do anymore. Um, it was just too fun. And so it's now illegal, actually. Uh, so it, we went from zero to 2,000 employees in four years, opened in 25 countries. So just a crazy operational you know, four-year period, uh, so fun. Uh, and then the internet collapsed. Uh, so that was less fun. 70% of our clients went bankrupt. Don't do that. That's a bad thing. Uh, Let's come back to that in a second. But first, you know, there's something very, you've, there's a, several things you've done that are different than status quo or at least headlines. And one was something you just mentioned in joining Dwight and the other uh, founders at, at uh, DoubleClick, in that there are a lot of founders in this room and, and many people watching who would not be willing to join another person's company. And in fact, you were, I think you said the 12th employee there. Yeah. So, it seems very clear that today you feel very strongly about being the founder and the companies that you're involved with, but then you seem to have felt less strongly about that. Can you talk more about your pull towards entrepreneurship in, in that particular moment? Yeah, and I think, look, what I, what I advise people when you're making career choices, uh, I think in general people overvalue you know, how much money they're going to make, uh, the title, and, and founder is obviously a great title, and they undervalue the only thing that really matters, which is, is the company going to be successful? And so... Because if you joined, if you were the 200th employee at Google or any company that became very successful, you have an awesome experience. You know, on every dimension, I'm not even talking financially, although financially as well, the network you have will be great, uh, the experience will be great, everyone gets promoted because when you're running a company like this, you just, there's no one there, and so you promote who's ever next to you uh, out of desperation because you're moving so quickly. So just everything is better, it's fun. And so you know, I always tell people, just start with that. You know, take a more junior position. In that case, I was taking a more junior position. I was thought I'd be CEO, and I, I actually started as CFO. And I quickly went, became president, and then I became CEO, but I didn't know that was going to happen. And because I picked the right company and because we built it, it was the right move. And how did that decision, I know you took a big pay cut to make that move. How did that affect your, um, your home front? Was your wife fully on board, and, and what set up an environment that made that something comfortable for you to do? 
in totality? Yeah, and it was, you know, a big decision at the time. Uh, you know, I was making 250000 at the time. I got an offer for 120000 I didn't have enormous amount of savings. We had one child at home. Another one was going to be coming soon. And so, you know, if it didn't work out, it wasn't going to be a great decision. My wife had worked at Apple, actually, in the 80s. Um, so was actually knew more about the tech space in some ways than I did. She'd been a computer programmer. Um, and so she was very supportive of it and thought it would be great and, and believed in what I was doing. I also felt like, worst case, if it, it, you know, a year later the company didn't work, as long as I had picked the right sector, uh, which I thought I had, then I'd go work somewhere else and it would work out okay. And so now we can talk a little bit more about that, that downturn. So when you were CEO and the market took a big turn and there was some slow, painful layoffs, uh, first, explain kind of what happened there, and, and then what could you have done differently, if anything, to have managed that situation differently? You know, it's hard because uh, one of the things, once things turn, like everything turns tomorrow, what you realize is every decision you made in the last year, in retrospect, was a terrible decision. So <clears throat> the company I bought for $100 million in Sweden, you know, in the downturn became worth $10 million. Oops, my bad. Uh, so the new office lease that I had just taken, because, you know, I was scrambling to keep up. You never think about the details, but you go from zero to 2,000 employees, you need a lot of office space. Uh, and so I had a 12-year uh, lease, 15-year lease at that point that I just signed. And then I had 800 open spots. So I went to the landlord and said, look, obviously the prices have come down. Let me just write you a check for the difference between the two so I can get out of it. And he's like, yeah, no, no problem. That, that check is $80 million. And so I wrote a check, which is a big check for $80 million to get out of my lease. Uh, to, sorry, you're at a half my lease. And so that would bankrupt most companies. We happen to have a lot of cash. Um, so no, that, that is brutal. And by the way, when you, when you, you know, start a company, that's what, you know, if it works, it's obviously great. And I've had a lot of things that have worked well. And when things are going badly, you know, it sucks. And so when you first round of layoffs is not so bad because you, you know, your bottom 5% or 10%, you rationalize that you probably shouldn't have been here anyway. But then when you do it again and again and again and again and again, and when we did our seventh round of layoffs, you know, everyone hates you, including all the people that thought you were a genius. You know, one thing you'll learn, this will surprise you all, but when, you, when hedge funds buy your stock at $130 a share and then it goes down to $5 a share, they don't feel very good about it. I, I didn't know that, but, uh, you know, all these people... Turns out. Yeah, and uh, so they hate you. Uh, you know, employees hate you. And you've also just personally gone to people. You know, you're recruiting all day long. And so I'm going to people I know and saying, look, I, you know, I want you to quit your job. Come join this. This is part of history. Yes, you have kids at home. You're taking a big pay cut. And then a year later, we fire you. And I fire you yeah, because we don't have any work for you. And you can't even get your old job back because there are no jobs now. And so it's hard not to feel pretty terrible about that, even though it wasn't malicious. How did people feel about you personally after that experience? So, How do you, you know, think? Range of things. So uh, some people take it very badly. Uh, some people all of a sudden a year or two later realize that you know everyone was going through this. We were a provider of a product to businesses. So all those people used to laugh at, pets.com, <laughs> those are my clients. And so you know every single quarter, a hundred of them would call up and say, really feel bad about this, but we're going out of business. I know we won't be a client anymore. And by the way, you know the $100,000 check and everything I told you was coming? Yeah, it's not coming. Uh, so we're not even going to pay you for the last several months. And so over and over and over again. And so I had to turn over the entire management team because what happens is uh, the fifth time I could just see that head of sales or head of marketing just doesn't have the stomach and doesn't have the optimism to uh, do another round of layoffs. And so 
in that situation, since no one really wants to come work for you anymore, you, you promote your number two, who's super excited to take on more responsibility and doesn't feel like it's their fault, and you have a new team, and you have to do that. So after that experience, you started several companies. Yeah. You went from seemingly not a founder, uh, or, or by DNA, to like super founder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what, what switched for you there? So uh, when we sold DoubleClick, um, I really started thinking, okay, what, what, what do I want to do next? I had a great run, loved my nine years. By then, it was enormously profitable and a very valuable company. So it all ended well, even with that little three-year dip of horribleness. Uh, but uh, then I thought, okay, there's three choices. I could either go run a large internet company, because I was one of the few people in New York City who had managed 1,000 people in the internet world. And I, there were no companies in 2005, even if you said I could run anything, that I really was excited about. Uh, nothing I thought that was that interesting at that moment. Um, I could go do something more financially oriented, become a VC, which a lot of people do, but I, I really like running things. And so decided to do something that I had never seen anyone do, which was start more than one company. Uh, I thought I had the ability to, to pick ideas, build people, raise money, and, uh, and do that, and diversify my risk a little bit. You know, the one thing you want to avoid is doing a startup, there's a good chance that a startup won't work. That's fine. What you don't want to do is spend four or five years on a startup and have it not work. You know, you have to think of your life as a professional athlete does, which is that you have a limited shelf life. And so those years are extremely valuable. And so most people, you wouldn't be an entrepreneur unless you were just fundamentally, genetically, over, overly optimistic. Otherwise, you'd be doing something much more sensible. But since you are doing this, you've just got to watch out for that trap of saying, you know, it's all going to work. Yes, we didn't hit this year's goals, but uh, I know it's going to work, and we're going to make some more changes. It's going to be great. And then years go by, and you end up with nothing. So I want to diversify that risk, and so that's what I did. So for people, you know, now I, I would assume that it's a little bit easier to start companies and, and lose some of the investment, that you can absorb that a little bit more easily. Um, but for people who are here who hear that and think, wow, this is a really important year for me, yeah. but they don't have the financial wherewithal um, to, to, to fail or to take the bigger risk, and they're, they're sort of scraping together, what, what do you advise people like that? What should they do? Sorry, people who already have a startup, you're saying? Or? Yeah, who, who are thinking about one, who maybe already have one, who are doing it on the side, who are trying to go all in but feel a, a pressure not to because of their financial needs. So look, each situation is different. You know, there are some people who could be in a moment where you just can't do it right now. Uh, it's not possible. But uh, otherwise, you know, what most people do, they, they, they edge into it. So they start a startup on the side. They build a team. They, you know, you, you've got to be able to convince people to join your startup and spend time on it. I mean, you are the recruiter in chief. And so if you can't get anyone who's really great to join you, that's, sending, that's telling you something. That's telling you something pretty important. So you've got to build that. You've got to, you know, you can do a lot of work. And then... Look, there are thousands of people in this city who have put money into companies, and if they believe in you and your idea, they will give you money. There is no, let's not forget, there is a ton of money. There is closer to too much money in this sector rather than not enough. So if you're not getting funded and you've gone out to a lot of people, you've got to really look in the mirror in each situation. It's different. Why is that? Why are people really not giving you money? Because, you know, how many startups are there? 10,000? So 10,000 companies got funded. Uh, but not every idea is the right moment, and maybe you don't have the right team. 
you know, is your team incredible? And when do you think the right moment is to, you know, we heard from Brian from Livinless who said he wants to get more traction to then show to investors. There are some people who say with a deck like what he's got today, he might be able to raise some capital. What, what are your thoughts on timing? So, look, you want to have proof points. So one proof point is the team. The second proof point is how far you can get in the product on what you've done so far. So uh, if you've got a functioning product, ideally you have a functioning product and you have some customers. I generally like to raise money so my general, but I, I put in the initial funding that gets us to the point, which will be a couple hundred thousand dollars, but that, that's just the equivalent of what, if you did an angel round, then I raise a VC round at launch. I don't want to be too far past launch because then you start getting into numbers and things like that. I want to avoid that. I want to, I want to raise money based on the hope and the product and the team at that point. Uh, and and that's, that is often the right moment. So. But they, you know, the reality is people have to like it. I've launched a lot of different products in companies and a bunch have really worked well, but I've had products that, that didn't work and I thought they were gonna work. And, and the cold hard truth was that three months after they launched, you could see people like, yeah, it's nice, but they weren't that excited about it. Let's not forget that almost every successful company in the internet space got there without a single dollar of advertising. If you have to rely on that, your, your product's probably not that great. You know, Business Insider to this day has never spent $1 in advertising. And we have 100 million people on their website because the product's great and people passed it on. Gilt got to $100 million in revenue, which actually took about a year without any advertising because people were telling their friends about it and they liked it. And I had a company years ago called ShopWiki, which was a search engine for shopping and it didn't grow like that because apparently it wasn't that great. And so the market told me. How much, you know, how much earned media did you get out of those just because of your own background? I mean, is it, is it reasonable? I just want to make sure that we're being fair, right? Guilt, I'm sure, got a lot of press because you were involved. So, you know, all you get in the beginning is you get a couple of stories. And that's it. And so, you know, people will come. You know, business that are got nothing. We, business are never issued a press release even to announce that it was starting. Why is that? Uh, because it was super small, it was just it was two people, and so Henry Blodgett and one other person just started writing to a site. It's the worst marketing strategy you've ever heard, <laughs> although it did work. But you know, literally just came in, two of us could do it tomorrow, and started writing to a site. And the next day, came back and wrote some more, and wrote some more, and wrote some more, and the traffic grew, and it just kept growing. So, I've but it was distinctive and good. But there must have been a meeting where you and Henry discussed. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to tell anyone. Yeah. And uh, how did that go no, over? Well. Uh, no, it's more, you know, Henry is always cautious about marketing. And so I would probably do more marketing, but he's always believed and it has been validated that if the product is very good, it, it will win out. And so uh, there was no, no press on that. And we also had no money. I mean, we were launching a media company at the time. Uh, so people hated the idea. It's an example where we had a lot of difficulty raising any money at all. Now everyone comes to me and says, oh yeah, I always knew it was gonna be a great idea. I'm like, yeah, you, you were one of the 50 people who turned me down for funding. Uh, I've been rejected many, many times. So there was a few, few directions we can go there, but one is you said that Henry uh, is not a big fan of marketing. So when do you turn the keys over and how do you build up that trust to, to say, okay, it's, it's your call? So, you know, in, um, Early on in most companies that I was starting, I would start as a CEO for the first six months or a year uh, <clears throat> and build up the team from that point. In Business Insider's case, 
and in Mongo, I couldn't really be the CEO because I'm not a great writer and I wouldn't have had the time to do that. So from day one, you know, when I, when I had this idea, I went out to try and find someone who could be the CEO from day one. And so interviewed a bunch of people at Forbes and Fortune, couldn't find the right person. Henry was an unusual choice because he was, uh, had a best in banking background, um, had never been a formal journalist, although he'd done some writing and was a fantastic writer. Uh, so from day one, he's a CEO. And so, um, you know, just you have to, that's just a partnership relationship where I defer to you, you defer to me. We, it's working. It's no different than when my wife and I plan a, a trip. You know, we've got to reach a consensus at the end. Uh, and so sometimes I defer to you. So you find it to be a very collaborative relationship with the CEOs? Yeah, ultimately they are running the company, so they need to be making most of the major decisions. You know, if, if I'm really saying, look, I, I think you should go left, and they think strongly go right, generally you gotta go right. And at a certain point, uh, you'll see the results over time. Yeah. The CEO has to be accountable for the results, and if they're not great, then, then you do make a change. And so, you know, I've made changes over time for both Gilt and Mongo, and not just me, there's a board as well, that you know, went out and, and found a new CEO for that moment. Henry's done a great job for eight years, so uh, you know, it's, it's an incredible success. There are a lot of people who've been on this stage, like Brad Feld or Gary Vaynerchuk, who would talk about having absolute focus on one thing. Um, that has not seemingly been your course here, and it sounds like you're at capacity. So I'm curious how you manage, or close to. So you can't, you do need total focus if you're gonna be the CEO. You know, you can't easily be doing very many other things if you're a CEO. But that's why I can't be CEO really anymore. I mean, I could step in for a month or two to help out a company, but fundamentally I can't be CEO anymore. So, so Well, let's talk about the process. With, yeah. Maybe we can use Contour as an example. Yeah. Day one, you have this, you, you've, yeah. you've now built out lots of office spaces. You've realized the, the yeah. pain point. I, I realize the pain point. I think this should exist. So last June, I'm thinking about this idea. I think it's a good idea. I spent a couple weeks thinking about the idea talking to a few architects, doing my own somewhat limited due diligence, uh, which is really product-wise. The only thing I'm thinking about is can I build a product that I think people, that, do, that does not exist today and will be compelling and different. I never do a financial model at all. And, and I am a former CFO, so it's not, I'm very financially oriented because it's totally useless at that point. I mean, at some point when I raise money, we have to uh, one piece of paper. If they want more than that of numbers, then they don't know what they're doing because it's so early, you know, Figuring out paperclip costs five years from now is sort of an irrelevant, irrelevant exercise. Some people do too. So anyway, July 1st, I decide I'm pulling the trigger. I'm going to do it. Well, let's back up a step because yeah. I really want details here. Are you building a deck? You know, no. Jeff, okay, so I've, you know, we, we had one of the co-founders of Priceline talks about puts post-it notes all over his house. What's your, what do you do? You're, li you're literally walking around just thinking about it in your downtime? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I am not recommending this, so this may sound really sloppy. In fact, it's really terrible, but... I, uh, I, I don't write very much down, and I'm, but I'm thinking about it. I'm doing my due diligence. So I did talk to architecture firms. Uh, I'm going online to see every product out there that I think would be comparable. So I'm trying to understand the industry and understand the product that's out there. And I'm just trying to think about what do people really need and what do they not have. Okay, I want to get to July 1st in a minute. Yep. But what's different about what happened with your decision to pursue Contour that was different from other ideas where I'm sure you've obsessed for two yep. weeks and decided, no, I'm not going to go that, in yep. that direction? What, what needs, to make sense, needs to happen? So two things have to happen. One is I really now, I, yeah, I have to feel that there's this product that's not out there. I also have to feel business-wise, because I'm not doing this for fun, uh, I'm, I'm doing it because I think it's going to be a successful business. So I've got to feel like there's going to be a business model, and there's $60 billion being spent in offices, and there's no website that helps you make your decisions. So 
I feel pretty good about that. Uh, I feel good about the, the potential business model. Um, and I'm intellectually interested in it. So that's another thing I solve for, which is I've got to be willing, you know, most, I don't sell companies very easily. So a lot of the companies I have eight, nine, ten years later. So this is like a long, you've got to think of it as a long-term relationship. Uh, so uh, I, I've got to like it. So there are other th there are things out there that I just, I don't do. Like I don't do ad technology ever again. Uh, it's a good sector. There are opportunities. I'm sick of it. So I did it for nine years. I don't do it. I don't do messaging apps just because I just don't find it very interesting myself. Um, so things like this, I like the aesthetics of offices, so it just intrigues me. And so uh, I thought it was a good idea and something I'd have fun with. What about MongoDB did you find personally satisfying? Mongo's a different story because um, Dwight, who was one of those two founders of DoubleClick uh, and I, so we've, we are actually both the founders of Business Insider, Gilt, and MongoDB. He has focused almost all his attention on MongoDB. <clears throat> He's one of the most brilliant technical minds in the entire internet. He doesn't really like being out talking to people that much unless it's a very technical presentation, so he doesn't try and get his name out there, but he is, uh, he is astonishingly good. Um, so we were going to do something a little bit different. It didn't start with MongoDB. We started with cloud computing. We started to do something that was much broader, too broad. This was a different than a pivot. It was actually a focus. So after about nine months, we, we figured out we were doing too much and that we had some breakthroughs in the database area and I thought about it a little bit more and so changed our business model. And that does happen out there. Guilt has never changed. Business Insider expanded and Mongo actually became more focused. So you never know. So let's get back to July 1st. Yeah. You decide Contour's moving forward. Yep. Pulling trigger, it's going to happen. So then, then the next thing I need to do is, is uh, hire a CEO. And so uh, then I start going through my network and the person I found, I wanted someone who had a design orientation and, uh, and a product orientation. So, you know, person who runs uh, Business Insider has to really be a journalist. Person who runs Mongo has to really have a technical background. And this, I wanted a product background, which is the same as Zola. And it just turned out that the CEO of Zola, who worked for me for five years at Gilt before we started Zola, her Stanford Business School roommate uh, had exactly that background. And so she introduced me to her, and uh, she was, and she knew that she was moving to Cal to New York a month later. I was out in California. I met her and and uh, brought her on board. But you did say, you know, that's a very specific domain expertise. But Henry did not have it. Admittedly, turned out to be a great journalist, but wasn't. It seems unusual that you even took the meeting with Henry. So what was? What, yeah, how did it's a little bit different. I knew Henry not incredibly well, but I knew Henry uh, from before. Um, he was a fantastic writer. So he had a blog that uh, lots of people liked. I mean, not, not like Business Insider, but thousands of people liked. Uh, he was known as a great writer, as an analyst, uh, and a great, you know, and a very smart guy. So he had building blocks, but I knew, you know, sometimes when you hire someone who's a little bit off model from what you're uh, thinking about, this, that can either be a brilliant move, or a year later, you're like, that's a terrible idea. And one thing in journalism people will tell you is that Journalists will not be excited if they're working for a non-journalist because they'll never feel like he understands. And that was the risk. If it hadn't worked out, everyone would have said that. But it worked out through luck or skill, and you know he's done an incredible job and has been a really innovative thinker in the way because you know we do so many things fundamentally differently than existing players. Okay, so let's talk about the recruitment process. Um, what do you look for in your CEOs? So each situation, you know, the jobs are very, very different. So, um, you know, in the beginning for Mongo, you needed someone who could really, I mean, and Dwight 
did this, he, he was the CEO and was coding for two years. We were only doing, it was a development project. So only later on do we need someone that had more business experience. You know, one of the fallacies I think, everyone in Silicon Valley VCs will tell you that you need to have a CEO who can take this from now through like Facebook size. So they will want the next Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg and Bill Gates will be the two best examples. And I, I don't actually think that's true. I think it's very rare you find that. And um, there are people who are perfect for the first couple of years and may not be perfect for a period after that. And it's a job like anything else, and you find someone else. You tell them up front that this may be you might this might be a two to five year path, and then we're going to have a Absolutely. growth stage CEO. Yeah, but I, but I I say them I tell them the same thing I was told when I became the president of uh, of uh, DoubleClick. So they said, look, you're 33. You know, you're going to be managing a couple hundred people. You've never managed anywhere close to this number of people. We're publicly traded already. So. Um, the reality is, at the rate we're going, you, you probably won't be the right person two years from now. And so I said, look, this is an awesome job. It's like five times bigger than any other job I've ever done. So two years from now, if we're doing great, you'll probably change your mind. And uh, if you're not, I've had an incredible run, uh, and it's better than what I'm doing right now. So I'll take that trade. It turned out that um, they were happy with it, and I kept going and stayed there for nine years. But, uh, but sometimes a change can be right, and sometimes people recognize you know, I have hired many, 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 many people, and I've fired many, many, many people. And, you know, often, not always, often people are like, you know, I actually understand that I wasn't the right person at a certain point. And so I get it now. What are some of your more unusual interview questions or tactics? No, I don't, I don't pride myself on having a, a particularly unusual interview. I think the thing I have said many times publicly is that everyone overvalues the interview and they undervalue the reference checks. So if you had a choice and you could only do one, you should only do reference checks, you should never meet the person. Now, no one in this room would have the guts to do that, but it's actually a better choice. Have you ever done it? Uh, no, I've never not met the person, and I still think that you know, fit is a little bit important, but yeah, everyone overvalues that, because you know, then you're just measuring uh, interview techniques, and uh, that's not the most important thing. What matters, and you've, if you look at all the people you've worked with in the past, at a point when you just say you, had, you were a manager and there were six other managers, you know that some of those people were hard workers, some had a great attention to detail, some were total assholes, but that doesn't always come out in the interview. But when I talk to the fellow people, they'll, they'll tell me. And so you need to spend, everyone prides themselves, oh, I interviewed 25 people for this spot. They don't pride themselves in saying, I spent 10 hours of my time doing reference checks. Not, by the way, the time is not always in the actual reference check. It's getting to the right person. And I still have made mistakes over time. I had someone, uh, a CFO from years ago, and hired her, thought it'd be great. And then a year later, I run into someone who says, oh my God, you hired so-and-so? Yeah, well, I worked with her five years ago. She's this, 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 and this. And I'm like, oh my God, how come I didn't find you? That is exactly what happened. I didn't get to that person. And so what are some critical questions you ask those people? So you want to, well, and the important thing is to get to multiple people to get the same story, which is one, do you like working the person? You know, were they very good? Attention to detail. Each job is different, don't forget. And each skill base is different. So, but if they're going to be a manager, you know, do people want to work for them? You know, at the end of the day, you know, people leave companies only because they don't like their manager. People will stick through. And believe me, we were going through all these rounds of layoffs, you know, it was pretty ugly. But I could see certain areas where uh, people would not leave because they're like, you know what? 
I work for Mary, and Mary believes in me, and she trusts me, and we're trying to do the right thing, and I'm not going to let her down. So I'm not going anywhere. And so uh, that makes all the difference in the world. From what I understand, you're a pretty vicious ping pong player. What can you learn about somebody in playing ping pong with them? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Mostly just how much they've played ping pong in the past. I, it is possible I have thousands of hours of ping pong uh, going back to high school. So I play a bunch of competitive ping pong. Uh, in fact, I won, I won a tournament actually two weeks ago. Congratulations. In the Hamptons. So I'm still out there playing. You can still play uh, for quite a while in ping pong, which, is, which makes it very, very fun. Uh, That's so no, not part of your interview process? It's not part of the interview process. You know. And look, I do think you know, there's those stereotypes out there. And, and it, I know you're joking, but, but actually, you know, 20 years ago on Wall Street or things, people had these biases like, oh, if you rode crew, you're probably going to be really great here. And, you know, that's, that's another uh, sort of discriminatory in the broadest sense way of looking at things. You know, what matters is how do people do their job? And I know tons of people who are great at their job and they're terrible ping pong players or they're terrible at this, or some of them are not even great family people, uh, but you know, that's not what we're solving for here. We're solving for someone who is great at their job and everyone else wants to work with. And the wants to work with is pretty important because you, know, you are building a culture and we've all worked at companies where you thought, you know, I actually like the people here and it's more collaborative and nothing's perfect. And you've worked in environments where it's kind of an asshole culture. And if you have that, you know, it's not great. One of the things I'm proudest of today is that, so two months ago we had, as you do every year, the DoubleClick reunion. Uh, and then we have one specific one that's just for people who were there from 96 to 2000. So think of how many companies you worked with that you haven't worked together for 15 years. And 150 people still show up every year for a reunion. Because we had a, an intense culture and, a, uh, and one where people want to still see everyone and it's part of the industry and we built up something that's very, very special there. Are there certain cultural values that you look to instill in the companies today or do you let the CEOs drive the culture at these companies? Look, they're going to they're be there full time. So uh, it's very important to me, and, uh, but they're going to have a big part of it. And look, the, there, there's not going to be a similarity in companies that just because I'm associated with them. MongoDB culture, you can imagine, is very different than the guilt culture. Uh, you know, one's more of a fashion company, one's more of a hardcore engineering culture. Uh, so they're going to be different. But hopefully they're collaborative and hopefully they're fun and hopefully they're, people are concerned about the product. So these are high-level platitudes, but, if, but you know, I'm, I'm happy with how both have done over time. What do you see as, you know, you shared some statistics on the growth of billion-dollar companies in New York versus San Francisco. How important do you think geography is to the success of an early-stage company? Oh, I think it's incredibly important, and you're seeing it, you know, for all the talk about costs or things like this, you know, in the United States, there are two incredibly successful cities. There's New York and San Francisco. They happen to be the two most expensive cities. So in our industry, you know, costs are not the issue. They're not the problem. What, only one thing matters is, you know, are we getting talented people? And so the cities where the most talented people in the United States want to live are the cities where uh, internet companies are going to be successful and technology companies are going to be successful. And, and the third one is L.A. Uh, and there are lots of other cities that are much cheaper. You know, I, I lived in Cleveland in high school, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. Those are relatively big cities with, you know, no success at all. No success at all because uh, it's an ecosystem. There are 34 people who worked at DoubleClick who have since become CEOs of companies. 
And so, and I'm not even saying that just because it's only double click, it's just, I happen to track that, and I don't track it for other companies. But that, you're still seeing even today the second generation of the companies that came out of one. So it's like an Adam and Eve thing where you start. Silicon Valley is in its seventh generation. New York is in its second or third generation. Uh, but this city could not be doing better in uh, technology. I mean, I couldn't find in 96, in our first 100 employees at uh, DoubleClick, anyone who had worked for a startup because there were no startups. Uh, and today, you know, there are thousands. So the number one question I got in 96, 97 from the press was, why are you in New York and not in Boston? Today, you're like, what are you talking about, Boston? There's no internet startups in Boston. At the time, that was perceived as the startup center on the East Coast. And New York has completely eclipsed uh, Boston in the internet space, not in the biotech space. Boston's still better in biotech. So uh, this morning, you were at a press conference with uh, Mayor de Blasio about bringing technology education into the high school system in New York. What do you think, uh, in general, around education could be done, and, and what do you think will make that program a success, if you do believe it will be a success? Yeah, and, and, and that program is a great idea. It's just an increased uh, funding and commitment to uh, teaching computer science in the New York City public school system. There are only 1% of students who ever take any computer science, and so obviously that's not enough. Um, so... Uh, Look, there, I mean, there's a, there's a huge problem in this country. Everyone here lives it. We don't have enough engineers, and we are making no progress. We're not, in, not making little progress. We're making no progress. You know, in 2012, there are fewer people who majored in computer science than 10 years before that. So there are only two solutions, because the math is the math. Either we need to bring more people in from other countries, or we need to grow more engineers here. And as I tell every single politician, and I spend a lot of time with politicians, the only third alternative, if you don't do the first two, is we, the industry, will employ people in other countries. And so that is what's happening to a much, much greater degree than anyone even captures in numbers. You know, J.P. Morgan tries not to talk about it. I don't know what their numbers are, but they probably have, you know, 10,000 people. And by the way, don't forget, in like 96, that was probably zero. So the, you know, we, we all know what's happening. It's happening to a great degree because our federal government's not doing enough and our school systems are not doing enough. My kids go to a uh, you know, very, very good private school on the Upper West Side, and more years of Latin are required than computer science. And I'm not against Latin, but requiring something is a major statement. And one of those two is looking forward, and one of them is looking a little bit backwards, and so I'd like more computer science. Yeah, I'm assuming you must have thought about the capitalistic possibilities there? Have you considered starting companies around education for engineers or startups around this space? Yeah, I really uh, would like to do that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of Yale, and I'm, so I'm interested in this issue. I have thought about, I have thought about starting a university here. Um, you know, I was involved, uh, I was on the committee that Mayor Bloomberg put together to uh, select Cornell, or just ended up selecting Cornell uh, for Roosevelt Island, which I think it was their idea. It was one of the most brilliant things that any city has done in the last 20 years. You know, RFP process where we offer $100 million worth of land, get a commitment to spend $2 billion in building up a facility, which will produce 1,000 graduates a year, 1,000 who would have gone somewhere else because they would have gotten their master's in at, you know, somewhere else at, at, uh, at um, you know, Carnegie Mellon or something else. And out of those, probably 70% will stay here. I am 100% certain that uh, there will be 25,000 jobs 20 years from now that we will attribute back to someone who was just here and decided to stay here because it was just easier. In the same way that, you know, I always ask people to think about 
if it was 1895 and Leland Stanford was sitting here, let's imagine we can go back in time, and he said, you know, I'm thinking of putting Stanford here in San Francisco uh, in Palo Alto, or I could put it in Denver or somewhere else. What's it worth to you, state of California? And so if I put a number on that, I easily get to a trillion dollars. You know, the, the payroll of Google, just assume that Google's only there because of Stanford, it just in California, just over the last 10 years, is $50 billion. That's one company. And then there's the multiplier effect, but there's 100 companies. So I think there's probably a trillion dollars by making that decision. So I try and make this case, not always successfully, to mayors and governors to say that that is one of the things in today's society, having more engineers is an enormous competitive weapon. And you are not doing enough. You're thinking about public transportation, you're thinking about other things, you need to think about that. And it's pretty low on their list. It's, it's growing. It's do, you, do you mean specifically software engineers or engineering in general? Because you know, this building, yeah. this school was founded around mechanical engineering and, and the railroad system. Yeah. They've been a little slower to uh, adapt the computer science programs. Do you feel that that's, is, or do you mean culturally science and technology or specifically software engineering? So I would say that broadly speaking, it's all science and technology, but the most important priority, because it's the biggest shortage, is uh, computer scientists. All right, I've got a few more questions. We're going to take four questions from the audience. If you have one, get your hand ready. Um, what defines happiness for you? So, uh, look, I, for me, what's so important is having control over my life. And so I'm, um, I'm known for being just incredibly happy with the balance. I spend a lot of time thinking about time management. Uh, so I have an unusual schedule. You know, I am always, all through DoubleClick, I made sure I always took five weeks vacation. Uh, for the last seven years, I make sure I'm out of the office almost all of this time with, with family. I have three kids. Uh, and so I actually am out of the office eight or nine weeks a year. Uh, that's an important part of what I want to solve for in my life. Uh, I'm always in contact. So every single day, uh, I'm on email for two or three hours, but I want to be doing interesting things. So happiness for me is controlling my life and having the balance of family, work, and uh, staying in shape. Those are my three most important priorities. And what I tell everyone here is, you can do anything, you can't do everything. And so figuring out what you're not going to do, that you do want to do, but you're not going to do, is incredibly important. So I cut back, starting in 96, I cut back a lot of different things that I've only been layering back recently. What, what did you get rid of that you thought you, that you wanted to do? Oh, so what I cut back, not to zero, but I bet I cut it back 75%, and these are costly, but um, any sort of cultural events, going to watch sporting events, uh, and spending more time with friends. And so those are obviously, you'd say, oh, those are all great things. But uh, I cut all those back a lot because I had young kids, and I didn't want to be sitting here at that time projecting forward. I didn't want to be sitting 20 years later thinking, oh, my God, I did a startup, and I never spent enough time with my kids. And I don't feel that way. You know, I feel like I have, and I structured my life that way. And I knew I also needed to stay in shape. It doesn't take that much time, but... 7 a.m. I was playing tennis today, and I do a bunch of different things. I do triathlons every year. That's important because I don't have the energy if I don't do that, and that discipline is important. And then over time, not in the beginning, layering in my interests in, in sort of uh, public policy and education have been things that I've layered in over time. You were asked a few years ago, or maybe it wasn't a few years ago, but not that long ago about potential run for public office. What are you, any, any thoughts there? Change your mind? Might you do so? I think probably not. I don't see the right thing. I am very drawn. I've, my whole life, I've been drawn to uh, public policy, and I think technology is playing a more and more important role 
um, and should play a more important role in the government. Um, so I'm in contact all the time with the mayor, the governor, a lot of different people and try and help that process. Um, you know, I think being mayor would be an incredibly impactful job uh, and really interesting. Being a deputy mayor would be very interesting. Uh, I'm inc if you'd asked me when I was 21, I had no idea, but I, I wanted to be a senator. And, and since then, I've decided that as, actually that's a terrible job for me and has become a terrible job uh, because it just changed over time. It's much less interesting. They have to raise money all the time. They get nothing done, and it's, it would drive me crazy to be in D.C. The interesting things that are happening in policy right now are happening at the city, city level and the state level. So uh, I think I'll remain on the outskirts and try and help where I can, but probably not be an elected official. You said almost exactly four years ago today, it was four years ago yesterday, to Mashable, uh, where did my quote go? You said... I have no idea where this is going. I, oh, I, I say a lot of stuff, it's but a good I don't pay attention to it. You, you said, and I quote, the NJ Tech meetup is the most amazing... No, no. <laughs> you, said, <"There's, laughs> you said there's still great opportunity. This is four years ago exactly. There's, four, there's still great opportunity on the, internet, on the internet in so many different areas. Yeah. Do you still believe that to be true today? And won't, might that always be true? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, Ten years ago, I was worried that, that the rate of change would slow down. And, um, and so far, it hasn't. No, I'm seeing, uh, I, I'm seeing you know, huge, huge opportunities. Uh, a lot of them in the business-to-business -business space, actually. Uh, so what's happened is not that the Internet is changing so fundamentally. I mean, we had a big shift with mobile. Um, the technology, core technology, is not changing as much in the last couple of years as it did previously. Costs have come down to be very, very low in many things. That was a big, big shift that created opportunities. Uh, mobile was big. Now what's happening is that each sector gets bigger, and so things that wouldn't have made sense and couldn't have worked seven years ago now can work. Contour, which I haven't proven can work yet, but you know, eight years ago, uh, the spending by, you know, uh, furniture companies online would just not have been big enough to support that business. Uh, but now I think it probably is. And so you're just seeing new things open up that couldn't have worked before. Um, you're going to see more consolidation. Uh, you're going to see a lot of things fail, and that's just part of our ecosystem. So, yeah, I feel super bullish. You know, I've also said at various points, but everyone would say this, that, you know, financial services, big, big opportunity. Education, still a big opportunity. Uh, we're not all the way there yet. Uh, and, and healthcare, definitely three of the biggest sectors. I do feel, by the way, that things like in e-commerce, I think that I think there are fewer opportunities. In the, in the areas where there are, that are super sexy, um, they're getting awfully crowded. So there'll be some new things you can do, but you know, dating, e-commerce, things like that, uh, you know, food delivery, too many, too many sites. So I, that was supposed to be my last question, but I, I have to follow up with that because the backdrop of our interview is the headquarters of Jet.com that's raised $220 million. Um, only 7% of e-commerce trans of, of retail transactions are e-commerce. So I'm surprised. You say you don't believe in it because it's too crowded, or you don't think that 7% is going to get high enough? Oh, no, no. There's, no, there's zero risk to the fact that e-commerce is going to grow for the next 20 years and uh, steadily. So that is a guarantee. Um, and it's one of those fundamental trends. By the way, when I'm thinking of something, I want to bet on a trend because I hold things a long time that I can count on not for the next two years, but I can count on for the next 10 years. And so that is going to happen. No, the question is, can you, how do you find your position and niche? And what Jet is doing, and I know those guys, it's an enormous bet, an enormous swing. So that I really admire. Can they find the position and 
have they figured out a way to fundamentally lower costs in what they're doing? That I, I'm not sure I understand yet. I'm not persuaded yet. But it's still early. So I didn't think Twitter was going to work either. So I mean, don't pay attention to me. Well, and it may not. Well, I think Twitter is fundamentally working. So uh, you know, I, I'm not. It's more you know, not whether it be a 10 billion or 30 billion. You know, people use it all the time. It's a, it's a great success. My son actually worked at Twitter in San Francisco this summer. Uh, he's a junior in college. Um, so it's working. It's growing. Uh, you know, we'll just have to decide how big it is. But I, I underestimated completely how big that would be. All right, this really is my last question, then we're going to hit the four from the audience. But yesterday, Jeff Bezos announced his own um, plans for a space-related venture. Is that, first of all, is that just the new toy of the, the billionaire? And second of all, would you ever consider, and I'm not uh, trying to, to put a stamp mm -hmm. on wealth, but mm -hmm. is that something you'd ever consider? Do you have any interest in space? No. No, I mean, I think it's great that some people are doing it, but it's just not the area that interests me the most. I think if uh, things I would do over time would probably be more kind of nonprofit oriented, uh, policy oriented. I mean, that's sort of an opportunity. I'm, I'm probably going to be more focused over time over problems that I see. So, uh, I mean, poverty, I really want to go to the moon. That's yeah, a big problem. Yeah. Poverty, income inequality, education, uh, things like that are, are big issues. I'd like to, if I could come up with ideas to you know, contribute to that conversation, I'd probably push myself there. Uh, but what, what uh, Jeff is doing, what Elon's doing is super cool, and uh, I, think it, I think it's great. And look, Jeff is, I mean, I still think is the most impressive uh, CEO over the last 20 years. I mean, what he's done is extraordinary. And the long-term vision is the only guy at the table who's really genuinely thinking about, you know, his company 25 years from now. Everyone else has a shorter time frame. Uh, so it's, it's impressive. And in a different way, I mean, my second choice, Elon is, I, I met him in 98 when he was doing, uh, I think it was called Zip2 at the time. Uh, and, you know, what he's done in that story uh, on all those companies is just so unbelievable. It's so, I mean, we need to tip our hat to both those guys. So it's incredible. Questions? Yes. Right. Oh, we gave you one already. So we're going to go to you. Yes. Yep. You got it. Speak up. You're saying I have a focus problem. Uh, How do you manage that? Because a lot of people can't even focus on one. Yeah. Yeah, so just to repeat the question. Uh, I do things in very many different industries. So how, do, how does one uh, play in different industries? Um, yeah, for, for me, it's intellectually interesting. Uh, and I need to just make sure that I don't overplay my hand. So I had a good understanding of why the guilt business model could work and why there'd be demand and why that had worked in France. But then you got to not convince yourself that you can pick women's dresses for someone else. So as long as I'm not doing that, and you just have to, you know, I, I think there's some people, and the media builds it up that you know, give you the impression that you know the CEO does everything and picks every product and designs everything, and you know their PR people fund that idea. And so I, I can assure you that I understand that I don't. There's most of the things I don't do, you know. And so you have to focus on what you can do. And then make sure everyone else is doing. I mean, there was a thousand people in a company. Obviously, you're only doing so much. You're involved with a couple big decisions, and picking great people. And so that I think I can do in these industries, and I can know enough about the industry to do that. Um, 
So I think it's okay. I don't, you know, do I make technical decisions for Mongo? Not at all. You know, Dwight and Elliot, who are the other two co-founders, uh, make those decisions. If it's a business-related decision, then I can do that. Uh, Henry does everything editorially. When we're out raising money or doing something that's more in my domain, uh, and I can offer some expertise, uh, then I do that. So it's just important to know what you can do and what you can't do. And I'm, I, I'm realistic about what I can do. And you gotta stay out of the way. One of the things I learned when DoubleClick grew so quickly is that so quickly you've gotta you know, be able to delegate and let people do their jobs and, and, and hold them accountable and not get in the way. And, they, they, and by the way, it's painful. Every day I see things in all the companies that I'm involved with that I would have done differently. Well, I mean, just more, it's less a group then. You're just focusing on what you can do. So Mark Zuckerberg runs, if, when I was CEO of Gilt or Doublelick, I did my job very differently than Mark does. Mark really focuses on product. And he says, everyone else, you do all the other things. And so in my case, I'd, I'd, certainly at Doublelick, I wasn't as much of a product person then. And so I didn't do a lot of product. They did everything else. And someone else did do that. So you just got to understand what you do well and everyone else has to do everything else. I think you know. For me, when when we spoke privately, the word that stood out um, was that you saw yourself as a coach. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fundamental difference than how many of us see ourselves as founders, and a really important distinction. Something yeah. to think about in response to that question. Question up front. Yep. Thank you for sharing your experiences. And uh, I had a question because to me, popped up the MongoDB look different from other companies. And my question is selfish because. I also happen to be in a business like infrastructure, the software infrastructure. And when I look at the history in open source, of course, uh, a lot of value in the software infrastructure is created in open source. There are companies like Tableau that create the product companies actually profitable with software. I don't know if you have, because you clearly say that you don't take part on the technical side, but from the perspective of creating profit, right, because profit is also important. Uh, do you have any insights for an entrepreneur that's creating a company with software infrastructure Well, just uh, question is more about open source and can we create a profitable business model? And it's a really important question. When we look, we knew there was an opportunity to create a different type of database. This is a non-relational database. Uh, and and we didn't think that we could uh, we'd do it. We couldn't, we couldn't convince people to spend a million dollars on our product in the beginning because, frankly, it wasn't good enough. It wouldn't have been good enough. They should replace Oracle with us. So the only way to get there was open source. And Red Hat was really our role model. You know, Red Hat is a company that's probably t- worth $10, $12 billion today that was an open source operating system company. So we thought that most future companies would essentially be f- almost freemium companies. And actually, the role model for me, bizarrely, for uh, MongoDB is LinkedIn. And you'd say, no, that's completely different. LinkedIn started and spent five years building up a database of resumes. They didn't have any revenue. It was basically an open source database of resumes. Then what they did is start, because they had that, charging companies to, to use it and providing features that made sense. And so Mongo, although it is open source, we build things on top of it now increasingly that are not open source. And so if you need something, you need specific integration with Kerberos, which Goldman Sachs needs, then uh, that's not open source. And so we think that can work, but you know there aren't that many examples of open source successful companies. Mongo is, in the last financing round, worth $1.3 billion. Um, so people think it's going to be successful, but we're not all the way there yet. We're not profitable at all. 
Uh, it's an expensive thing to do. It's a big swing. But the logic is that Oracle's worth 180 billion. 100,000 companies are using our product right now, even though only probably 4,000 are paying. Uh, so can we build something that's worth 10% of the value of Oracle? That's the bet that investors are making, and we, we, we think it's going to happen. All the way in the back, who stood up the whole time? Great. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a hard one because it's, it, it's so high level and you're talking about different industries. I've seen many, many examples where people are launch, as I said before, launching a product that's just not that compelling. And uh, so they just don't think it's that great. They don't think it's that great. There are other substitutes, alternatives, and so they're not, you know, the test of do you tell your friends about it? You guys have all used lots of different sites. There aren't that many sites in the last couple of weeks that you refer to your friends. And those are the companies that are gonna make it. Um, but in FinTech or a B2B space, you still go with that model? So to a certain degree, yes, because there you're still going to see reviews online. You know, you're going to, you know, the Lending Club product was something that stood out. That was a fintech product, but consumers loved it and it worked on both sides and they found a niche and it made a lot of sense. Then it's all just execution. So uh, then it's, you're back to people. And look, they're very, if I asked, if you were all CEOs right now, and there's a CEO gathering, uh, and, I, and each one of you has a CTO. And if I said to you, raise your hand if you think your CTO is in the bottom half of CTOs in this, in this room. And very few people would raise their hand. So obviously there's a problem there because half of you have a CTO who is in the bottom half of CTOs. And you just don't know it. And so and that's true of head of sales, that's true of everything. Uh, and so the question is, you know, how good is your group? Is it really good? And when I look back uh, over time, or when we have done a good job, uh, and I watch and see what those people are doing, um, I realize I did a great job of hiring. And in some cases, I'm like, you know, that group wasn't that great. You know, the, there was a moment, if you asked, when we had 175 people, which is not a huge company at DoubleClick, uh, and you said, your CFO at that point, what was he doing 10 years later? So 10 years later, he was the CFO of Oracle. So the question is, for you guys who have a 175 person company, can your CFO scale to be the CFO of Oracle? Head of HR, what was my head of HR doing 10 years later? He was the head of HR at Cisco. What was my number two person in HR? So think of your number two person in HR. Uh, she was the head of HR coach. And then six people on the finance team, in that team in let's say 98, 99, 2000, have since become publicly traded CFOs. I also have examples where that's not as good. You know, so it's not that all my people are, have been great. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've never had as much success in great, great CMOs, world-class CMOs, uh, you know, over time. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but, but that, it's really, that ends up uh, over time, you know, uh, determining whether your company's gonna be great or not. I'd say one story that was important for me when, um, in the beginning, DoubleClick was an ad network we had our own technology, and at one point we decided we were gonna stop doing ad network and focus only on the technology. And we were a public traded company, so it means we were gonna abandon over time revenues that were technically 80% of our company. Don't do that as a publicly traded company. It really, it's a hard thing to pull off, which we ultimately did. Went to the board, told them we're thinking about doing this. We thought, 
this is going to be an ugly board meeting. Um, and you know what they said? They said, you know what? Makes sense. We, um, we actually never liked the original business model. And so you know, there's a golden rule when you're in sales. If you have the order, stop talking and just go on. But I could have, like, by the way, why, why, why did you invest if you didn't like the original business model? It doesn't make any sense. And they said, you know what? This is Bain Capital. He said, we weren't sure. We just didn't think we liked it. We love the team, and we figured that you guys would figure out something better. And I remember thinking at the time, I never would have had the confidence to bet so much on a team over the idea. And it turned out that they were right. Uh, so I'm I, I stuck in my mind. Sorry. Last one. I saw your hand first right there in the middle. Yep. What's the point of not spending money on marketing? So in the beginning, look, you can get a bunch of people to try your site. You know, you most sites business models don't need millions of people to make it work. You know, you need to have thousands. And so, yes, everyone in your company is going to send it out to all their friends. Uh, you're going to get people to try it. You're going to try and get some press. You're going to be in events like this. And so generally today, you can get thousands of people to try. And if you get that, that's going to be enough for you to figure out whether people really like it, whether it's B2B or, or B2C. And then you have to just really figure out, is it, is it working great or not? You know, Zola is a good example. You haven't seen a lot of ads. We do some advertising now for Zola. I also don't like to do advertising until I know the lifetime value. And I don't know that in the first month or two. Um, but you know, Zola was being passed on. So in the beginning, can you imagine who would sign up for a wedding registry when no one's ever used it before? It's the most important day of your life. So in the beginning, we had like you know 30 couples that we knew uh, who used it. But each one of them invited people, and now you know next next year, about 50,000 people couples will use us as their wedding registry in year three because they like the product. So. Look, advertising, you know, I, I ran DoubleClick, so I've spent lots of time in advertising, and over time it's very important. But in the beginning, you've got to focus on that product, and uh, it better survive on its own. This community is a lot about giving back and helping one another. I told you this on the phone also. What can we do to help you or any of your companies? Because I'm sure every single person here will like a page or tweet something or whatever we can do, because this is not a one-way street. So what can we do as this community to help you out? I mean, look, uh, hopefully you, I see well-dressed people here who are buying, uh, buying things on Gilt and uh, getting news from Business Insider. Uh, and I'm sure there are companies using Mongo here, uh, but there should be more. Uh, anyone you know who's getting married should, should use Zola. It really is a fundamentally better product. Um, and then once, probably six months from now, once you're moving offices and you have some scale, we're really aiming at larger companies. Uh, Contour will be the, the right choice there. So, uh, but look, you know what I... I spend part of my time doing is trying to encourage the ecosystem. I feel like in 1996, I was really one of a handful of people that had to explain why I was in New York. And so I want to keep giving back and build up this ecosystem, which has brought so much you know, enjoyment, fun, excitement, career, money to, to thousands and thousands of people. And so it's so validating to see this be an important part 
of the entire tri-state area. And so what you're doing, everyone here, which is starting new companies, uh, I think is great. So I'm really happy about that. Thank you. I think, I love that when we ask what you want, you immediately went right to the salesman hat. I love that that's still <laughs> a core to what you do. It's true. Um, so since you took my seat, I was supposed to more oh, graciously snag this thing, but we are giving you, since, Never mind that. Uh, our third, we just started doing this with the mayor, third certificate of mayoral recognition and excellence in innovation. We oh, really appreciate you being here tonight. You. How about thank a big you. round of applause for Kevin great. Ryan? That's it. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on our future episodes. From the team at New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you're having a great day, and we look forward to spending more time with you in the future. 